Crank up the volume and get ready for real-world bird hunting by listening to the Wingman Podcast by Eastman's. Now your host, Todd Helms. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by Savage Firearms. You know, Savage came out with a Renegade uh, just recently, a couple years ago now actually, and we've been blessed enough to partner with them recently, and I'm stoked to be shooting the Renegade, but I gotta be honest, I love my over and unders. Love my over and unders. And I was super excited to check out the Stevens side of the Savage lineup, and that's where you're gonna find your single shots, and your over and unders. The Stevens 555 is my pick for an over and under. I've been able to shoot one now. Honestly, we've had one in our hands for a couple of years, and I've been able to shoot it on and off at sporting clays on a couple different hunts, especially upland stuff. And man, it's light in the hand. It's super quick to the shoulder. It shoots exactly where you're looking, where I'm looking anyway, and it throws killer patterns. And I, I am stoked to still to be hooked up with savage but still be able to shoot an over and under at the same time when i want to that's that stevens 555 man that is a it's an awesome shotgun especially when you're talking bang for the buck guys i can't tell you how much gun you're getting for really smoking price on those i i can't remember off the top of my head what the exact msrp is on those but you're gonna find obviously msrp is one thing you're gonna find them for different prices at different retailers and i just had the opportunity to talk to a guy while i was at our one of our local uh sporting goods stores about that stevens 555 i picked one up i was looking at it I was like, man, that's really nice shotgun. I was telling, actually, I was telling my dad, man, bang for the buck, this is an awesome shotgun. And there was a customer standing there with his kid, and he comes walking over, and he goes, hey, man, I heard you talking about that Stevens. You know, I've got, you know, brand XYZ. How do you think that compares? And I said, well, you know, especially when you're, when you're talking about bang for the buck and the money, that, and the, the money you're going to spend for what you're going to get, I was like, dude, that shotgun, you can't beat it. It's a phenomenal shotgun. If it fits you, man, go for it. He obviously was already intrigued by it. He walked over, looked at it. The kid's shoulder, he's like, what do you think? Kid goes, I like this gun, Dad. Boom, bought it right there on the spot. Um, That's not a shameless plug for my sales ability (laughs) because I don't have much sales ability, to be honest. But that was just me having the ability, having the experience with the Stevens line and knowing what a high-quality shotgun that Savage produces in that Stevens lineup that I could just unequivocally say, hey, man, you're not going to be disappointed. It's a great shotgun. Check it out. Same goes, obviously, for the Renegade lineup and all the Stevens lineup. Savage is making awesome shotguns made in America. I can't say enough about that, how proud I am to be partnered via Wingmen through an American-made company. Thank you, Savage, for sponsoring today's podcast. And if you get a chance, guys, make sure you're checking out both the Savage Renegade and this full line of Stevens shotguns as well. You're not going to be disappointed. Hey guys, Todd Helms with another episode of the Wingman Podcast. And I'm here today with Kyle Warren from Paint River Llewellyn's in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. My old stomping grounds. Kyle, man, how are you? I'm doing great. 
thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you saying yes, coming on. You and I have uh, some some ground to cover. I was just complimenting you on that on that background. That takes me back, man. I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's you said it's one of your favorite grouse covers, um, but without giving away details, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's uh, it's about as close as anybody gets to it is seeing the background in my Zoom uh, meetings. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I those those good honey holes like that. You gotta protect them and and take care of them. That's for sure. But tell us. Tell us about Paint River Llewellyns. Tell us about who you are, what you guys do, your philosophy. You know, I've done some, done a little bit of digging on you, but I want to hear it from, from your mouth. I want the audience to hear it. And, you know, I discovered you guys on uh, Instagram and was actually looking for a dog for my dad and came across your dogs and kind of what you, and kind of, liked what i saw but fill us in give us the give us the skinny sure um so uh uh my name's kyle warren i've i've uh been a pro dog trainer since i was a teenager uh and um dogs have always taken care of me so i've been very fortunate to always be training dogs um really trained everything under the sun uh with um law enforcement dogs search and rescue dogs upland dogs waterfowl dogs uh, rehab aggressive dogs but uh what got me into dogs when i was a kid was um uh was the bird dogs you know so my three of my aunts professionally bred dogs and uh, one of them had bred uh german short-haired pointers for a number of years and we got a short hair when i was 10 uh we belonged to i lived in the catskills in upstate new york and uh we belonged to a a, a nice um upland hunting club that there was like 20 guys and we released the pheasants and the chuckers but it was on a thousand acre pig farm uh so there were a lot of grouse there in that kind of like rolling hill country in the um uh western portion of the catskills and uh i got hooked you know we would always see um you know the number of birds we got put out between the pheasants and the chucker and then you had to put like the number of birds that you took of each and they always had a column for grouse and you know everybody would have like flush two got zero flush four got zero <laughs> you know, you know, release 30 pheasants you know got 29 you know yeah. that kind of thing so um so i was hooked from that early age and uh just as as time went on i uh dabbled in some other breeds i i had um uh wired hair vishlas and smooth coat vishlas a uh, couple britneys and um in my early 20s, I, I settled on uh, the Llewellyn Setter, which for listeners that uh, uh, might not be familiar with Llewellyn Setters, it's an English setter, but of a particular strain or background. And um, so I had trained uh, a number of them and I, I love the Vishla. Uh, I just could not have any luck health wise, no matter what country I brought, bought the dog from, no matter what health test I just we just were not meant to be, unfortunately. So, so I said, you know what, I'm going to, uh, research breeders. And, uh, I got my first, uh, Llewellyn in, uh, 2004. Um, and, uh, from there it became an obsession that, uh, those dogs just, uh, collectively handled grouse better than 
all the dogs that I had before and every, all the other people's dogs that I was, uh, training and, uh, they were just the easiest handling, most natural dog collectively that I've handled, uh, that, um, uh, handle grouse really well. So, so that started it. Um, I, I live in the upper peninsula now. Um, I've had a camp here for 10 years, been living here full time for, uh, over two years, bought a homestead property, uh, four years ago. Um, and, uh, used to commute back and forth several times a year, the 1200 mile trek. Um, but once I, once I bought my camp here, um, you know, which was eight or nine years into my Llewellyn, uh, passion. Um, I just, after one hunting season here, I knew I had to move here to be able to hunt the UP, Wisconsin, Minnesota, you know, it's a uh, heart of grouse country and, um, you can drive several hours in most directions. And if you got good dogs, you know, what you're looking for, you're usually going to have a good day. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I, uh, so my whole focus shifted from having, uh, a couple litters here and there, um, to, uh, 10 years ago, focusing on, um, building up the breeding program. Uh, I've raised over 100 Llewellyns myself in the last 18 years up to their first hunting season. Wow. Um, and, uh, while I have dogs that I've bred that are in my program that I don't own, um, I've only bred out of 12 dogs to date out of those hundred that I have kept the others. I had sold to started dogs as time's going on, but yeah, uh, we, we give it our all, you know, um, uh, dogs definitely, uh, are given the greatest opportunity to thrive. You know, we hunt, uh, a minimum of 450 hours a season. We're out there 450 to 500 hours a season. We hunt 90 days all day long, sun up the sun down to, you know, first year dogs, you know, get worked pretty much six days a week. And all the older dogs are getting, depending upon their age, you know, anywhere from, you know, four to six days a week. So, um, we do a little bit of guiding, not much. Um, mostly it's just, uh, all about, all about my dogs, you know? So, uh, once, uh, September 1st comes, it's, uh, we, we dull out all the other noise and just, uh, focus on the Northwoods until whenever Wisconsin's end date is for their season in January. And, um, yeah, so, um, come usually November. So that's kind of the start of our breeding season. So we like to have litters on the ground. If Mother Nature cooperates between November and April, um, this past winter, she did not cooperate. So I have three litters on the ground right now. Which, oh, busy. Uh, is, yeah, busy, busy challenge. This is our training season, you know, so normally we'll, we'll have puppies uh, on the ground November to April, you know, end of May through Labor Day weekend. We have those puppies coming back to us for training. I might be doing a couple started dogs in addition to a couple of dogs I might be assessing for myself. We roll into the hunting season. That's straight through to the beginning of the year. And then we're kind of, that's our cycle, you know, and, um, it's a, it's a nice cycle, you know? Um, so if we, uh, subtract mosquitoes, seven feet of snow and, uh, lots of poop scooping, we're, uh, <laughs> we're doing pretty good. So, <laughs> Yeah, the good old UP and the snow and the bugs, man. I tell you what, that is, yep. uh, that is, I don't, I don't miss that at all, yeah. at all. Yeah. 
well, it's been a rough year. <laughs> oh, yeah. I hear you there. The you guys have so you run you run Llewellyn's. There's and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's basically two different strains of English setter. Correct? Um well, I guess it depends on, you know, how uh you know, what level of of uh history and snobbery we want to go down the rabbit hole, but I mean ultimately you know, uh, I would say that we have the American field bred English setters. Um, we have the Llewellyn setter. We have the show line type setters. And then we have Ryman style setters. And if you want to throw in like the European style setters, those would be the different types of, and those are all English setters. They could all be registered as English setters. Um, and they are all registered as English setters. The American field dog stud book, is the only organization in the world that really recognizes a Llewellyn setter as a separate breed from the English setter. Um, that said, if you bred your Llewellyn to a registered English setter, those offspring are considered to be English setters. So um, I'm not a Llewellyn snob. I mean, I, you know, my dogs are Llewellyns to date, I'm sure with our small gene pool and uh uh you know relationships that i've been working on making the last five plus years um you know that i'll have quote unquote english setters in the years ahead with a heavy concentration of llewellyn blood next week actually i'm scheduled uh to go to italy to go see some uh setters in northern italy uh, work black grouse in the italian alps cool. and um so we're looking at some some establishing some connections there and my dogs are, uh, you have to look at breeders when you look at English setters, because there's no pointing breed on the planet that is more diverse in type, because they're, you know, in terms of internationally speaking, there are many of them. And geographically speaking, uh, different breeders have had different interests in their breeding goals because of the terrain, the, the coat type, you know, the confirmation, you know, there, there's a there's a lot of different things. I mean, at the end of the day, we can say that, um, you know, the, the most intelligent dog is going to be able to hunt anything anywhere, but just in terms of uh, body type, temperament, all these things, everybody's got their own little spin on, you know, what they look for. And in the last 20 years, I've certainly had my, my uh, uh, trying to design my niche setter for, you know, I'm strictly a grouse and woodcock hunter. Right. More so grouse hunter. I didn't, I didn't move here for woodcock, <laughs> but, uh, um, the, uh, uh, my pups, uh, you know, I, I've, I've bred, raised several hundred puppies at this point and they're in all four corners of the country and they do well, but you know, like I said, it's a, it's an intelligent dog that, um, uh, you know, does well on all species and that's what we try to breed for. That's what most breeders we hope try to breed for. Um, but my dogs are kind of a hybrid. I feel uh, between the American, the, what, what has become the classic American English setter of today, um, and what is considered the classic European setter still of today, but, you know, um, uh, historically. So, uh, and I like that. Uh, it suits my needs very well. You know, my dogs are dogs that, um, uh, as I say, um, point intelligently according to the scent picture that they're given. So most of the time my dogs happen to hit scent and they're within 10 yards of a bird. 
they set, they, they drop on the ground, you know, and, and they're setting, you know, um, and if they're 20 yards or more off the bird, they're standing tall, high on both ends, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's, that's all Intel for me when I'm in the grouse woods. Um, uh, there's a um, uh, couple different types of set uh, hunting dogs, pointing dogs that I kind of categorize them as true dogs or tracking dogs. And I've been on numerous podcasts. People could find that I've, uh, you know, turn this subject inside and out. But, you know, in, in summary, for the listeners, uh, I define a true dog as a dog that hunts with a high head catching, you know, the air currents and, and uh, finding what we call this classic scent cone. Um, and when those dogs go on point, you know, eight out of 10 times, there's a bird there. And if there's a, not a bird there, and it ran off that point, you know, if they go to relocate it, they usually find that bird within 30, 40 yards. So that's a true dog. That's what Americans historically have bred for. Um, that's what our, all of our testing systems are, are, are designed uh, for um, in this country. Uh, Europe favors uh, uh, tracking more. And um, so uh, a tracking style pointing dog, not just setters, but they come in all different breeds. But uh, we'll see um, uh, a dog that might go on point and it's on trail scent because this dog is running with its head between its uh, shoulders and its elbows. So it's catching air scent and ground scent at the same time. And uh, so as a result of that, you know, every great grouse dog is going to stop the moment it, it, it smells a bird. So it stops. You might get up there and then the dog, while you're getting there it's acknowledging that this is older scent and so it's waiting for you to get there and you kind of do this leapfrog thing with the with this setter stalking and pointing working up this trail depending upon how to use hound dog terms cold of a nose your dog has some dogs have weaker noses or more potent noses than others um that might uh the trail might be 50 yards long might be 30 yards long might be 200 yards long you know it just depends on uh where that bird's meandered to, when that bird acknowledges it's been had and it's going away from you in the linear sense, you know, as trying to evade us as predators. And so I, I personally uh, like that style dog um, in my kind of cover. Um, you know, a great grouse dog is a great grouse dog, whether we're labeling them as a true dog or a tracker, but certainly, um, you know, my, I guess my brand of setter is, uh, is, more that of the tracking style dog and most uh, hardcore hunters that hunt a lot of wild upland birds other than maybe the bobwhite quail and woodcock most wild bird species will run um, if given the opportunity Um, as they say the fly is to die so you know uh, whether we're talking grouse in the up ptarmigan in alaska chucker in idaho you know pheasants in iowa I mean, all these birds run, you know, and having a dog that will um, intelligently be able to connect you to the game uh, via trail scent um, can be very productive. And, you know, hunt strategy means a lot in terms of uh, effectively working your true dog in or your tracking dog. And I certainly have uh, my methods and ways of uh, that I hunt grouse that I that I feel is um, unique only based on having never met many other people that hunt the way that I do. And that comes from a decade in um, doing canine search and rescue and learning about scent theory and behavior. 
um, you know, and all the different stem pictures and the realm of capabilities and incapabilities of, of scent movement and the dog's ability to, to uh, be able to analyze that or have access to that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, as I like to say, uh, uh, bird hunting is as complicated as you would like to make it. <laughs> you know, so you're, man, you are spot on with that. It's interesting. You're talking about, uh, the true dog versus the tracking style dog. And I've had both. Um, and, and both of them were short hairs, uh, yeah. German, German short hairs had a dog that was complete tracker head up in the air and exactly what, how you just described it. That's how she hunted, had another one that head was lower and we would move and move and move and move and move. And I killed grouse, obviously woodcock too, but I killed grouse overall over both those dogs, but the tracking dog for my style and how I wanted to hunt when I lived up there. And I grew up in the upper peninsula as a lot of listeners know. And that style of dog was by far the most effective for me in that part of the country. And I yeah. think, I think out here, um, you know, we obviously hunt a lot of pheasants in Wyoming, um, but we have tremendous chucker hunting, very good Hungarian partridge or gray partridge hunting. And then, of course, sharp tail grouse in the eastern side of the state and sage grouse as well. And a, that tracking style dog that move and move and move and keeps pushing that bird, especially if you know your country and you can move that bird into an area where it's it has to flush. You can pinch it and pin it down. That's super effective. But I never heard it described that way that you just did. That was that's really cool. Yeah, so I, it's a. Uh... You know, I mean, that, that's just how I, I explain it to uh, uh, my clients and, and, and people all the time. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's not for everybody, you know. Um, again, I got half my dogs are true style dogs. They hunt with the high head and they're great. They're great grouse dogs. It's just a completely different experience. So my, my true dogs, um, because they run with a high head, they generally hunt at a faster rate of speed because they hunt at a faster rate of speed. They generally range a little bit more. So, you know, uh, I pretty much consider, you know, um, uh, anything over a hundred yard dog, uh, a big running dog, you know, right, in the grouse right. woods, cause a hundred yards can feel like a hundred miles. Oh, that's a mile you know? away in the grouse woods, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Out yeah. here so, hunting chuckers, it's like, that's a good starting point. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. You know, so so I, I like uh, my, my true dogs are 50 to hundred yard dogs, usually 50 to 70 yards. And, and that's usually the distance they are when they're going on point. So the, the thing with um, uh, uh, the true dogs is, so, you know, we're all running GPSs today, Garmin's and whatnot. And I, and I run my dog silent on Garmin's. I, I like the quiet of the woods. I can hear flushes, you know, I just, you know, I'm more connected. I feel to the dog and the woods. Um, so th th that's nice with that technology. Um, but yeah, dog goes on point 50, 70 yards away. You start walking that way. You're following your, your GPS to the dog. Um, that bird could be between you and the dog. That bird could be anywhere as you approach. Right. So, um, there's just, uh, you know, I, I find that my, my true dogs, um, their success rate of finding and handling birds I feel is is uh, pretty much the same as the trackers but my shooting opportunities 
uh, are not as clean because that bird could be anywhere. Whereas right. half the time now the tracking dogs, it's just an additional dimension. The tracking style dog, you know, if they hit a scent cone, they're going to lock up on point. There's no tracking involved to hit a scent cone, right. you know, right. so, but, but half the birds they locate or more are done by trail scent. And once that trail gets established, you know, um, you pretty much have almost guaranteed that you're shooting is going to occur in front of that dog, you know? Um, so you went from a 360 degree possibility down to like 180. Yeah. Um, and those and those away shots, you know, are, you know, I just, I put more birds in the bag over my trackers because of shooting up quality shooting opportunities, because in these woods, um, you know, and I don't subscribe, you know, there's, plenty of people that'll argue with this statement but i don't subscribe to dogs pin birds i believe that i believe that cover i think dogs can hold birds when birds are in cover where birds feel safe you know sure. Sure. so you know if uh if if you got a a grouse you know in a a beaked hazel run and it's kind of sparse it's not super dense and it and dog goes on point it's not going to hang out there. It's going to walk out and, and run to maybe a low, low bow, you know, spruce tree or, or, you know, some better fit for cover, you know, or a down log, you know, something that it feels it can conceal itself. So when we have these dogs that are quote unquote pinning birds, you know, in the grouse woods, um, that's only happening, you know, based on, the the cover type that's that where the bird is you know we don't usually come across you know a pointing dog on point in very sparse cover and the grouse is staring at the dog and the dog is staring at the grouse and everybody can see everybody the only time that ever happens is when the grouse just has bad timing and pops that on the logging road and there's the hunter and the dog you know exactly um, it's not so, like those old paintings right yeah yeah right right those are <laughs> those, are, those those are more um, uh, what we dream of rather than what we experience. But, yeah. you know, the um, so so the the idea of the tracking style dog creating more shot opportunities, you know, I would say happens arbitrary percentage here, not based on any facts, but at least 50 percent um, more shot opportunities on my trackers per contact. You know, so my my tracker dog might have you know, uh, 10 points on a hunt and my true dog might have 10 points on a hunt. I guarantee you that I'm probably going to have six to eight shooting opportunities over my trackers versus my true dogs, which might be half that, you know? So yeah. now again, I'm also anybody that's hunting with me knows that like I go to where like no man has gone before in regards to the thickest, gnarliest stuff. I, 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 I harvest my fair share of birds, but it's, for me, it's all about bird contacts for my dogs you know i mean bird contacts make bird dogs and and grouse dogs and uh so you know i'll go and stuff where you know i'm i feel like i'm stuck in a spider web and i can't i can't move you know or i gotta you know butt first you know through that hazel cover you know and those dense young conifers you know uh, uh because going forward it's just guaranteed to lose an eye kind of thing and they you know they say if you, if, if you cross your arms um and, uh, you know, you don't, and you fall backwards, you don't hit the ground, you're in good grouse cover, you know, and, and, yeah. uh, you know, that, that's, that's where we go. And it doesn't always offer shot opportunities, but, you know, how close can that dog get you to that bird to produce that shot opportunity? Those are the dogs in my eyes that are, um, 
that are the great ones. And the just the experience, you know, in New York, uh, we have pocket covers and the birds could run, but not that far because they're pocket covers. So they're real jumpy. Like you might be stepping into a pocket cover and they fly out the other side. Sure, um, sure. But, uh, you know, we have there's New York can be a great grouse hunting state if you have access to private land or you just have one or two dogs and but you can you can have to travel a lot sometimes but you know if I was hunting my true dog they did a great job but let's just say I hunted for an hour and we found two birds the if you're running the clock on the amount of time that there was action you know in, ter in terms of engagement between you and that bird and the dog is like two minutes with the true dogs with two <laughs> birds you know whereas we could have two birds in a cover hunting for an hour with the trackers and it might be 15 minutes of action because right. you're with that dog leapfrogging so there's the synergy a connectivity a watching the dog work rather than kind of running to a dog on point so to speak very often which what i find to be the case with my true dogs and it depends. Depends why you're out there. I mean, you know, most people that hunt birds with dogs wouldn't hunt birds without dogs. Um, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's a very different experience. When I guide, I ask people what their experience are with dogs and the types of dogs that they've hunted. And I kind of articulate the differences that we're kind of talking about here. And, you know, um, you know, if, if they're an experienced dog man, most likely they've experienced both types of dogs and the true dogs right. and the trackers, you know. Right. Um, but people that, I mean, you know, hunt pheasants and hunt chucker and hunt grouse in the lake states where they got room to run, you know, it's, uh, if you've had a good tracking dog, I mean, there's bad tracking dogs, <laughs> you know, the dogs that just don't stop and they put birds up, you know, but if you've had a really good tracking dog, it's, it's kind of hard to, to, um, uh, rise above that connection with the dog and, you know, a bird in the bag, uh, you know, after that type of hunting experience. I mean, I have, I have so many people, I have so many grown men cry in the woods when they see a tracking dog, you know, you know, trail a bird for 50 to 150 yards, multiple sets and points, different, you know, uh, positions, all telling us stuff and sending them ahead. You know, I always say it's like, it's like kicking the overtime field goal in the Super Bowl. you know, when you connect with that, with that, uh, situation, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's grouse hunting isn't for everybody tracking style dogs isn't for everybody, but for the people that are truly, truly passionate dog people and, and avid upland hunters over pointing breeds, um, that hunt species that run a lot, um, it can be, uh, it can be a lot of fun. And it can be very effective. It's interesting that you say that because I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, my experiences there growing up as a kid and we had dude we shot grouse over beagles and labs and yeah. and setters and short hairs and britneys mm -hmm. i mean you name it we yeah. had all kind of kinds of dogs hunted them you know we hunted without dogs sometimes when you, you didn't have one you know and you just did whatever sure. you could but it was you know it was it was the most enjoyable how you described it um that the, the best short hair that i had she was a tracking dog and that was she was by we, i killed more birds over that dog than anything else yeah. um with a with my first lab being very a very close second 
just the way that dog could work birds, you know, you talk about pinning them or moving with them or whatever. I got a lot of shot opportunities over, over both of those dogs, but when I come out here and for guys that are, you know, talking about, you know, going to Arizona or Texas to hunt quail or coming out to Idaho or Wyoming to hunt chuckers or Montana prairie grouse in the Dakotas or, Mon or Eastern Montana, that's a different set of circumstances. It's totally different cover. Um, is there an advantage over a true dog in a, in wide open cover versus a tracking dog or is it, does it equate to yeah. the same? Sure. So that, that's an excellent question. It, um, uh, there's multiple layers to that answer. One is, um, uh, I've never hunted roughed grouse a day in my life, according to wind. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because yep. in the woods, the wind changes direction every 30 feet. Right. Okay? Exactly. So to me, uh, the, and I've hunted over, over well over 500 dogs in the, in the grouse woods in my, in my career, you know, to me, the dogs that are finding birds, the most handling birds, the best, their natural patterning becomes they kind of do a natural courting in front of you and then they do a big cast circle around behind you and come back out in front you know anybody that's you know hunted grouse a lot with great dogs you know you kind of feel like your dog isn't checked in in a minute or five how whatever its normal thing is and you're about to pick up your gps and where does the dog come from right up from behind you behind you, know? you. yep you know and comes up you know but it was just out in front of you before you know so so those, that, that, that zigzag cast and back and forth, quartering back and forth, two, three passes in front of you, then doing a cast, you know, whatever they're, whatever that dog's natural range is, you know, 30 yards, 50 yards, 70 yards, you know, they're, so they're, they're getting a high probability of detection by working that way because the wind's always changing direction. And that's one of the biggest things that I always preach about grouse hunting is that if you look at historically, every person that has a pointing breed you know, if we call a productive point, a point that produces a flush, okay, how far away are the dogs from the birds when they have a productive point? And the answer is 90% of the time prior to November, you know, uh, when the, there's still vegetation up, you know, you're talking eight to 15 yards, 90% mm -hmm. of the time mm -hmm. when a dog goes on point and you're going to step in front of it and flush a bird, it's like eight to 15 yards away, you know? Yeah, sure. You could have a dog on point. It took you five minutes to get to the dog. You walk 15 yards in front of the dog and then 15 yards ahead of you, the bird goes up because that bird scooted out ahead of there yeah, while it took moved. you so long to get there. Yeah. Um, but uh, by and large, eight to 15 yards. So why is that? Because pretty much, Todd, that's that's how far scent can travel, you know, in the grouse woods, you know. So so I take I've always taken that idea with my hunting strategy. And you look at these big running dogs, you know, you can work a big running dog can handle birds great, but they miss birds. You know, uh, the idea that dogs have super noses, I mean, in, in search and rescue, um, not to not to not to go down that rabbit hole. But, you know, in search and rescue, we're we're looking for we're looking for people the same way with shepherds, the same way that our our bird dogs looking for birds. The difference is, is that our sense source for an 80 pound shepherd looking for a 100 to 300 pound half naked man, our sense source is, you know, Massive. hundreds of pounds bigger, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So you really get to see when those scent pictures get amplified or magnified, you know, based on the size of the sense source, therefore the amount of scent, 
how how you can read that and how to interpret that in your bird hunting and on the same note you get to see how how a one pound bird in understory in the forest in september and october the prime of our season when we're hunting them so much you know that scent really doesn't travel that far you know um late season once all the bracken is down all the leaves are down you know all the yeah. soft mass is gone you know you sure you get a nice breeze a weather front came through yeah you'll get 30 yard points no doubt but most of the time your average grouse hunting day when most people are grouse hunting is going to be eight to 15 yards so if you have a dog that's very independent a very forward hunter and quartering or however he's doing it and you look at your gps and you see basically acres of uncovered area there's birds in there and and so, you know, how I choose to hunt and with the trackers, the trackers just don't miss birds. They're going to take longer to go through an area, but they're going to be more thorough, you know? So when you have your true dogs, you need to, you need to make sure that you understand what probability detection is and, and what it is for that dog based on its hunting patterns, you know? And um, uh, so that's a big difference. So taking that information and now going like to the West or the Prairie, you know, open country, um you know people hunt wind all the time right you mm -hmm. know so uh so that's a big thing and the other thing that's big that's a huge difference between uh my neck of the woods and yours is humidity you know so yeah. uh scent composition and quality is based on moisture content so my dogs here i know how cold or how potent some of my dogs noses are they might pick up a six hour old grouse trail how do I know that it's six hours old? Well, I use, I'm the pigeon guy. I'm a fourth generation pigeon racer in my family. Um, so I use pigeons, you know, during the training season. So, you know, when I, when I put out eight birds and uh, I'm picking up the launchers, I was working through dogs and the later dogs come around and they, you know, smack, smack uh, a really hard point, you know, on uh, a place where a launcher was six hours ago with a bird in it, you know? That's old scent, right? Well, most people don't want their dogs to pay attention to that. Well, as a tracking dog uh, handler, it's good to know that the possibility is that that scent might be that cold, you know? Right, um, right. That's what you typically will never get in the West because humidity uh, and the fact that we're not training, you know, we're not, we're not like, you know, doing these NAVDA tests, you know, for our dogs, you know, on wild birds, you know, dragging, dragging dead birds, you know, and then waiting six hours and trying to train them to track something like that. So most of the time when dogs go onto a trail um, in environments that are more open, so more exposed to sun, so sun burns up scent too, um, and therefore humidity as well. Um, these are what we refer to as hot tracks. They're fresh, you know? So I would be surprise and i can't speak from experience but i've had many many of my dogs live all over the country and in those places and hunt those places but um i'd be surprised if you had um uh you know a chucker trail be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards long you know before you could spot those chucker now again we're talking about birds that might be covied 20 30 together or something like that right, we're not talking right. about a, a, a singleton grouse track right so that also amplifies things, but out West, 
lower humidity, more direct exposure to the sun. Those are going to, you could have an, an amazing tracking dog, but just by nature of the environment, the tracking dog's gonna track way less there than it will where I am because of moisture and habitat. Um, you know, so it's just tracking uh, is not naturally as um, maybe conducive based on the elements and the, the terrain. Um, but uh, you'll get your trackers out there, but it's going to be hot tracks, you know, so those tracks are, are going to be, you know, and I mean, in the desert, yeah, they might be a couple hundred yards long, but you're probably going to be hauling butt, you know, because oh, those birds, those, those blues, those scalies were, were running or something like that, you yeah, know, so, yeah. um, but they're not, you know, the odds of, of that track being six hours old, I would say is probably pretty close to zero you know um yeah. whereas that would be the norm uh here you know if i'm hunting a, a really deep cover that i know like nobody's been there that day and i'm in and it's the afternoon you know um and those birds haven't been pressured or stressed all day and they're just kind of milling through the woods you know through their cover yeah i mean I, I, that absolutely i'm sure that at times my dogs have started on six hour old trails you know That's and i amazing. can tell when they're I can tell when they're, you know, they, they'll stop and they'll be standing real tall, you know, but they just, they won't have the, the rigidity in their body, but they're, they're there. They're like, just waiting for me. All right, I got it. Let's go. You know? And then as, as we close in on the bird, hone in on the bird through them, uh, tracking it, stop and go, stop and go, you know, their profile gets lower and lower and lower indicating we're getting closer and closer and closer, closer, you know? So, the the predatorial canine brain wants to conceal itself you know as as it gets closer to its prey you know and and that's what they're doing and again i i like that i find it functional i hunt a lot on on swamp edges and stuff so i'm in alders all the time uh you know so lots of times you know so i'm leapfrogging with the dog like i said and, and when i step in front of that dog you know five ten feet and that dog doesn't move and we've been on a trail for a while i know i'm gonna get a flush so i'm looking at little holes in the sky through these alders and i always say i probably shoot 20 to 30 percent of my birds on one or two knees you know just darting ahead of my dog looking for that hole in the alders and you know looking up on a 45 as that bird's going to go up you know just based on the information the dog gave me you know if the dog is still pointing tall again i'll i'll be still be using my gun as a machete or turning my back <laughs> to advance forward you know through, through the thick stuff you know yeah yeah, I, I try. I try to, you know, refrain from the eye poking advancements uh, for potential shot opportunities rather than, you know, uh, uh, still still ways to go on the track. So, yeah, well, that, that brings back some memories, buddy. Holy smokes. Now <laughs> <laughs> well, we had we had uh, I can always tell with uh, that tracking short hair. You talk about your dogs getting the center, getting lower and lower and lower, the hotter she got or the, the closer the bird they get. And it was, it was the tail on that tracking short hair, that, that little stubby tail. It, if it was doing this, you know, slowly twitching back and forth, I knew we weren't that close, you know, and we were moving, 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 moving. And the more rigid that tail got, and, the, and her eyes, her eyes would be, if, if we were close and a flush was going to happen, the tail would be rigid and the eyes would be 
focused, like locked on, not going yeah. back and forth and, and wandering. It was amazing, fascinating to read the body language of oh, yeah. that dog in particular. Um, yeah. Pretty, pretty crazy what, how that all works. But that's, that's interesting, the, the scent theory and scent dynamics that the differences between back there where you are and out here where I am. I mean, obviously, if I'm putting a dog on the ground out here to hunt upland birds, it's, it's going to have its nose into the wind. There's just, and I will drive four miles around, uh, you know, rim rock section that I and hunt it with the wind in my face for that yep. very, very reason. Yeah. Because otherwise, you're tracking my, dogs, your tracking dogs are going to capitalize on that wind. They're going right. to, again, an intelligent dog is going yeah. to use the resources that are given to them, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very common. I've had dogs that I've bred that live out that way. And the owners had one or two hunting seasons with them and they thought that they were true dogs, you know, um, because ah, of where they hunt. And then they come, then they come here and they're here. <laughs> and after a couple of days, the intelligent dog is saying, Whoa, I, I actually smell birds a much higher percentage of the time in this cover. If I stick my nose to the ground and, you know, after a few days of being here, they're, they're finding half their finds are via tracking, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. and it, so, so in, you know, environment, weather, you know, um, terrain, you know, absolutely can impact how dogs work. I mean, again, and you can have dogs like our field trial bred dogs or field trial bred setters, you know, um, you know, America has been very successful in breeding the type of dog that they have wanted in that respect. And that is a dog that's high on both ends, is hard running, hard stopping, you know, all the time, you know, again, different strokes for different folks. Um, I, for me, that that's just not my kind of dog. Um, but uh, uh, those dogs often will look the same on point whether they're five yards off the bird or 50 yards off the bird yeah you know yeah. that that for me being exclusively a forest hunter at minimum and our shooting lanes and opportunities are very limited to begin with um that doesn't do me any good in terms of intel like i i'm so used to you know having the dog convey to me mm -hmm. where this bird is and how close it is or how far away it is that um, that language, as as you as you uh, label it um, correctly, you know, uh, is uh, is vital. You know, if we're if we're talking about uh, um, you know getting getting birds in the bag on a on a on a high level. And again, I hunt I hunt lots of you can find birds in lots of places. You know, that are more open. Uh, New York hunting, you know, you know, half the birds that fly in new york die because it's just it's rolling farmland you know just yeah. rushy and thick and you know but you find lots of hawthorn and lots of dogwood tangles and stuff that you know are not more than five feet high and you know the birds got to fly at some point you know once once you're once you've got it down there and uh those birds uh survival on the wing are are far less than than our cl our classic northwoods um yeah. here yeah. um because of the because of the density <laughs> Yeah, the Northwoods is a tough place to hunt birds. You know, it's a tough place to hunt anything in particular, but <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, you throw, I remember, um, had a buddy in college that came from 
out here, out west in the mountain states. And two things that he couldn't do. He couldn't walk a straight line in the woods um, without getting lost. And I mean, like within a quarter mile, he'd be turned around. And yeah. he could not hit Grouse and Woodcock because he couldn't yeah. get it through his head that he was looking for wide open, you know, shots. And but there's brush. I'm <laughs> like, yeah, that's good. You're gonna have that, buddy. You yeah. Know? So yeah. he he walked a lot of logging roads. You know, when we would dive in, he'd stay out where we do. He was gonna not get lost. Yeah. Oh man. But yeah. Yeah. It's just it's it's funny to talk about you know and, and compare the different the different types of hunting, upland hunting, the different uh, styles of it. You know, I've told my wife, I'm, I'm working on a, on a young 15 month old British Labrador right now. And he's, oh, well, he's awesome. And, and I hunt a lot of waterfowl and he's, he's, I did not make the mistake I've made with my other labs and start him on like upland birds. <laughs> So uh -huh. he's actually not, he actually stands a chance of being rock solid with very minimal effort in the blind. Yeah. But, you know, all my other ones started out hunting grouse and pheasants. And then you, I expect him to sit still, you know, in a, in a duck blind. It's like, uh, yeah, good luck with that. But uh, uh, yeah. any, anyway, I told her, I said, you got my old, my old dog, Mackinac, who is, uh, he's 10 and he's, he's about ready to be retired, you know. And I told her, I said, when we get another one, it's going to be a setter. And yeah. she's like, okay, that's fine. I got three little kids that like to go roam around in the hills and, and love to eat chucker, you know? So it's yeah. kind of like, yeah. it's like, sure. yeah. And hunting chuckers with a lab is no fun unless you, really, <laughs> unless you really like exercise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, the terrain is hard enough, right? Oh so. man but yeah. oh it's it's crazy crazy but you have i'm going to completely switch this has been an awesome conversation but you bring up a point on your website you say an important message from paint river llewellyn's and you talk about in there having a working dog that has a task that has a job and if mm -hmm. you're not if you can't provide that for your dog to think about um adopting a dog from a shelter yeah 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 go, go into that because that's something that when i read that it resonated with me on a very deep level as i've always said if my dogs don't have a job that they're bred for it it makes it hard for me to even want to have that dog you know sure sure yeah i mean so uh you know in, including all dogs under the sun that I've trained for all different facets of life. You know, I've, I've trained over 4,400 dogs and 3,500 people, um, in the last 25 years. And, uh, the, the things that I've repeatedly witnessed is that one, people have the wrong dog for them. Um, you know, we're picking dogs, you know, based on what they look like, you know, more than, more than anything else. Um, uh, and two, we got, you know, we have the classic communication barrier, right? You know, how, how dog savvy is the novice dog handler, right? You know, with their new dog, you know, people are always anthropomorphizing, you know, uh, uh, you know, our feelings onto what the dog thinks. And, 
And that can get tricky because dogs do have the same emotional spectrum as humans, but they're not human. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, uh, they're much more of a rigid hierarchical creature than we are. And uh, they can use that to their advantage sometimes. But, um, you know, so and these these working dogs can be can be phenomenal family dogs. Uh, but, you know, they by design, I mean, my dogs are you know, my dogs are some, some of the closest working setters you're going to find collectively speaking, but I still require people to have a fenced in yard, you know, that are going to buy my dog, you know, because I mean, if you got your butt up in the air and you're gardening, you know, you, you live in a beautiful place, you got lots of land, you know, the dogs gets comfortable there. If, if my dogs are outside and they're not on a fenced in yard, they're hunting, you know, and they will repeatedly give you the opportunity to accompany them on that hunt, <laughs> you know, um, but, uh, uh, you know, if not, you know, they're going to, in, in terms of being home and again, their comfort there, they're going to keep expanding their area, you know, um, and that's just, that's just how accidents happen and stuff. And now if we're out hunting, I can be in the middle of the woods. If I stop, my dog goes to their natural range, 50 yards, whatever I sit down, my dog effort search that it's not going to keep on leaving me and going further and expanding uh, territory is going to come and jump on me, punch me in the chest, say, Hey, I got this all covered. We're going to keep moving. But when you're home and the dog knows you're not in hunting mode, but it wants to keep doing it. It's a, it's a different, it's a different uh, scenario. And I think, uh, I just think that people, uh, a lot of companion dog people that might, you know, fancy certain breeds. And we have breeds today, the Labrador included, you know, uh, you know, you can have many, many generations removed from the working dog, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I, obviously I'm a purebred kind of guy. I, I have purebred dogs, but if we're talking companion dogs, you know, and I, uh, while 99% of my puppies have gotten and always will get sold to, um, families that hunt, uh, I get loads of inquiries from people that, they're active families, you know, and, um, you know, they're, they're going to give the dog a, a great home, but the odds are they don't need, a, they want a Llewellyn setter, but they don't need a Llewellyn setter right. to be happy with a right. companion dog. You know, they could, they could go find, you know, uh, a, a nice pure better mixed breed dog and, you know, a shelter, you know, we're, we're, we're euthanizing thousands of dogs every day because we just don't have homes for them. And, yep. you know, uh, uh, God bless everybody that, that goes and adopts dogs, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I certainly don't want to see or hear about very nice dogs having to be euthanized just because they don't have a home. But, uh, you know, I think finding the right dog for you and, and, and realizing it's getting those people, the non-working dog people to realize the, the instinctual, the instinctual value of the working dog and the extent, uh, to what extent that can make that canine content by those instincts being fulfilled. And I feel that um, hunting dogs are different than like shepherds. You know, shepherds are like a multi-purpose dog. Yeah. You know, so yeah. they got like the high prey drive, the high possession drive, you know, a ball on a string and a tug toy. And you can teach that dog everything, you know? Yeah. Um, our bird dogs, sure, one could definitely argue that they could be taught anything, you know, but 
for what we've been breeding them for, for hundreds of years, <laughs> you know, um, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of um, counterintuitive to, you know, get one of these bird dogs or these versatile dogs that do feather and fur, you know, and then constantly discourage them from that engagement. Like to me, I just feel that's wrong. You know, it's just wrong. You know, um, you I, know, we're not talking, we're not talking pork, we're not talking porcupines, but if we're talking, you know, upland birds and snowshoe hares, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's a, you know, it's just not, uh, you know, shame on shame on us humans. I feel that that do that. So there's plenty of dogs out there that need homes that these people could be happy with um, that are not my dogs and my dogs. They love the snuggle. They'll sleep underneath your covers if you want. They're great with kids. I mean, they're a nice size. They're they they they. I always say they're running for mayor. You know, um, if you got a barbecue going on, they're gonna be handing they're gonna be handing out buttons. You know. Uh, it could be the dead of winter. They got a great off switch. If it could be the dead of winter, you know, they haven't had exercise in a month. You want to sit down in the middle of the afternoon and watch the Titanic for three hours. They'll curl up in a ball next to you and watch the Titanic. So they're, they're great companion dogs, but they are working dogs. You know, they, yeah. they were, they were dogs designed, you know, by design to have purpose. And, um, and uh, when you fully tap into that instinctual purpose, it, it's, uh, it is a more fulfilling life for the dog. Even if the dog doesn't know, <laughs> doesn't know it because they've never had that experience. Yeah. You know, um, I, I have sold dogs to people that uh, Bob Whaley, the famous uh, L. Hugh Pointer breeder, um, you know, uh, I don't know if he invent, coined the, the phrase um, dry hunting, you know, but, you know, people that they don't carry a gun, they go out, they like to watch their dogs work and the dogs are hunting and the people are hunting with their dogs are just not harvesting any birds, you know? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. nowadays with technology, we carry around cameras, you know, I, it's not, I have no problem with that. If I have an avid dry hunter that wants to carry around their Canon camera instead of their Canon shotgun, you know, um, I don't care. That's fine. You know, dog still fulfilling, you know, three quarters of its genetic destiny, so to speak, you know? Um, and uh, so, you know, it's, but it is important to have the right dog for, for yourself. And um, I think uh, over the years as a breeder, you, you kind of learn, you know, I'm the TMI guy, you know. So if you've been on my website, you see there's a, a wealth of information there. And um, it's a great, you know, it is a great website. For you guys that are listening, you've got all kinds of stuff on there. I've checked it out and you've got your own podcast called Setter Talk. Correct. Yeah, not not as active as I would like, but I have that, and certainly all the in this episode, I'll I'll post on there once you get this up and yep. running, and you know, so there's there's a lot of information that to try to help. You know, I vet everybody the best I can. I talk to them for an hour or two on the phone, and mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, I have them fill out an application that gives that gives me a lot of information. But at the end of the day, you know, I mean, it takes you years of living with somebody to get to know them really well. You yeah, know, a one yeah. a one page application and a two hour phone call doesn't make you uh, the expert on that individual. So, so I try to just give them as much information as possible to try to help them make an informed decision if they're in the right place or not for themselves. And uh, and that makes it so you know my pups go to forever homes and you know my my dogs are not in shelters um, you know and they never will be you know and that's. I think that's the responsibility of the breeder to try to, you know, make sure that doesn't happen. I think that's, I think that's a great philosophy, man. I, I really do. Like I said, when I, 
when I read that on your on your web page, and then the, I wanted you to explain it and talk about it a little bit because I feel the exact same way. Um, and I don't care if it's a shepherd, like I, I've had shepherds too. And it's when they were happiest when they had a job, you yeah. know, when, especially shepherds, holy smokes, that dog would, oh, yeah. that, that one in particular, if he had the ability to protect, patrol and provide, he was happy. You know, yeah. if he, if he yeah, didn't, yeah. Uh, he, you know, he'd tear stuff up. He was a pain in the butt when he didn't, but when you gave him those opportunities, he was awesome just awesome yeah and man i could tell you i could tell you stories about shepherds you know i i, I rattle off these these numbers you know 4400 dogs two thousand of them have been shepherds you know so <laughs> my my aunt my aunt that bred the short hairs also bred german shepherds from uh -huh. germany and uh and they've always been a popular breed in america so uh and i was in search and rescue you know for 10 years and i bred shepherds as well and just very, very, very different breed, you know, like the set, like the English setter, it's a breed that has polar opposite ends of the spectrum available, you know, right. in terms of type, you know, right. Right. but uh, yeah, I mean, what got me crazy, you know, you're familiar with shepherds and familiar with, you know, Schutzen dogs, you know, obedience, protection, tracking sport, and there's three levels of, so, you know, you get these, these people that, you know, um, could afford to buy these dogs for, 15 to $25,000 all trained in German, you know, but they were kennel dogs, you know, they were, yeah. you know, they, you know, so they, they, they're shits and three dog multiple times. Mm. They'll save any, any person they're bonded to they're, they're, they, they're trained within an inch of their life kind of thing, but they were kennel dogs and they were shepherds, you know, so they were out on the training field put away, you know, and now they come home and they got to live with three cats, five children, all the, all their friends that come over, you know, and so they, they basically got this $20,000 dog that needs to be trained all over again for their mm -hmm. particular life, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, because this amazing animal is a monumental liability for them, <laughs> you know, and it, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the realm of shepherds is, uh, again, just as vast as the realm of setters when it comes to type and, and stuff. And that's a, that's a, with that litter, when I was breeding the shepherds, which was in the middle of my Llewellyn, you know, time, uh, you know, I would, I would, I would be looking at the puppies and I would never let anybody choose uh, a shepherd puppy. I would always put them because depending upon what the home was, whether it was law enforcement, mm -hmm. search and rescue, right, just an active right. family, whereas the Llewellyns is different. Everybody's coming to me for the same reason, you know, and, uh, uh, and we're trying to breed that you know, uniform, uniformity there, um, that, uh, for the same singular purpose and, you know, not to say I wasn't trying to breed for the same singular purpose in shepherds, but you just get, there's very different personalities in the same litter when it comes to shepherds. And, uh, uh, you know, it would very much influence where those puppies would go, where with the Llewellyns other than me, like maybe taking, you know, my personal pick of the litter and wanting to go to that one home of the seven people that hunt 70 days in a season kind of thing you know um there everybody's coming to you for the same reason uh which is good it makes your breeding program um uh you know uh goals more clear and it and it facilitates a uh, uh, better feedback in the offspring that you're producing versus like the shepherds that the lady that you know she's just a marathon runner and the dog runs with her and the other guys in law enforcement, the other person's in search and rescue. There's a lot of, a lot of differences there, you know? So. 
Yeah, no, that you're spot on, spot on, hundred percent. And that was, like I said, I wanted you to talk about that. I wanted you to bring that up because it was something that I, I read that and I was like, "Yep, I definitely agree on that point." So we got to talk yeah, yeah. about that one. But oh, yeah. cool, man. Well, we're hitting it right at an hour right now, and it's been a great conversation. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I know. Like I had mentioned, I, I found you. Um, actually looking for a dog for my dad and I don't know when he's going to be ready or if he's even going to be ready for another one but if he is I'm going to have him get a hold of you because I I think that would be a really good fit and I am definitely going to be getting a hold of you when my old when my old lab makes space unfortunately so <laughs> yeah, yeah um but yeah man I I really enjoyed our conversation and I got to ask one last question that I try to close out my podcast with and I think I know what the answer is going to be, but I got to ask it anyway. You can only hunt one bird one way for the rest of your life. What's it going to be? Uh, it would be the only bird that I've ever hunted my whole life. And that's <laughs> grass, you know? I, I have dog, I have birds on bucket list. I mean, I, I would love to get to Alaska someday and hunt ptarmigan. I, I, I have a lot of Norwegian blood in me. So I grew up listening to these stories of Norwegian ptarmigan, you know? And mm -hmm. uh, so there's, there's a part of me that, would like to to hunt them someday um but uh you know being from upstate new york and our native bird was uh, the rough grouse you know and um you know no that just uh that bird grabbed a hold of me real good and uh i just uh my my clients are like come with us in january to to nebraska oklahoma kansas come hunt quail and I just, you know, uh, some of my friends just joke like that. I like, I, I, I just choose to suffer through the winter with the rough grouse, you know, like <laughs> I just, uh, it's my bird and I really have zero desire to hunt any other species. I live vicariously through my, uh, my puppy clients and friends that hunt around and I think it's cool. And, and, uh, you know, I just, uh, I'm where I'm supposed to be and, uh, maybe someday, um you know i moved i moved to where i can hunt out my back door and a, and you know drive and drive a couple hours in any direction and yeah the rough grouse is is uh uh has been my destination for the last 32 years of of my hunting life and will be for the next 32 years yeah. <laughs> so. I, I i knew that was going to be your answer there sure. are when, it, when people talk about the king of game birds, that's the one that caught that. That's it for me too. Rough grouse is, yeah. and our unfortunately our rough grouse out here are quite naive compared to the ones yes. back where in your neck of the ones where oh, I grew yeah, up yeah. too. Well, I went. I, I I've actually petted some out on on archery elk hunts, and <laughs> yeah, no, I hear that. Can reach down and touch them, and it's like, no, nah, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I mean they get here. They they can you know they can get dumb on the road here. You know they they don't feel threatened you know by mm -hmm. atvs and stuff like that but yeah pretty much minnesota to the east coast is a totally different species than than what you guys got out there and you know you haven't been from here you you know that i mean certainly you know early season the young ones you know can yeah. be dumb you know on any species but uh it's funny when i sell people the chucker country like in utah washington oregon you know every one of them has to make the point to say like, you know, I think I would argue with you on the king of all game birds. Cause they're thinking of their grouse, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was like, you come hunt birds in New York, North Carolina, 
you know, or the UP, you know, and you'll have a different appreciation for, you know, chasing those, these birds here with dogs, um, you know, and it, and it presents a challenge. Sure. If they were an open cover, you know, I'm sure. Yeah. It's different. Yeah. But they, they use their cover. I mean, they, it's, yeah. it is their habitat. It is their yeah. kingdom and, and they will, put that spruce tree between you and them every time you know? yes sir they absolutely will do it yeah oh man well that's super cool man like i said thank you kyle i appreciate your time and it was good catch uh getting to talk to you about some things i definitely learned a lot in this podcast as i hope the listeners did as well and maybe we touch base again after the fall and see how your hunting was um oh yeah what what are your bird numbers looking like up there are you are where are you in the cycle um well uh i mean i would say you know longtime locals would say that uh, years on the nines are are the peak years and having yeah. hunted here for 10 years now i would i would agree with that yeah um so i mean i you know a better year you know hunting in the lake states any year is still a better year than anywhere else kind of thing you know um uh we had good we had you know the thing with like thunderstorms and stuff it can be so isolated but um in my area we had we had a pretty severe it was a bad spring for uh, a spring hatch i i think a lot of our i have only seen three broods and there were only two to three in a brood and they were still like cotton balls and that was just last week so i think i I would anticipate that um, most of the hens lost their first clutch of eggs. And so usually if they don't hatch, they'll lay a second clutch. So right, right. I think we'll, uh, I think I'm going to be, I'm hoping that I'm going to be seeing a lot of little cotton ball grouse uh, sometime, uh, you know, this month, later this month um, for a second, second clutch. And it's been dry lately. So if they, if they're hatching, you know, they kind of need to get fully feathered a bit before you get all the rain and everything. Um, and we had, it was the middle of June and we, we would have an inch of rain, lots of wind. And then like in the morning, it was like 30 degrees in the middle of June, you know, so kills them. So, yeah, so we'll see, but we had great winter retention, you know, it was a great, it was a great grouse winter, you know, um, classic UP winter, but we had, we had for over two months, we had, four plus feet of snow on the level on the ground here and it was bone cold here for a couple months yep. so you'd see the birds budding in the trees and they just yep. dive right into that snow and yeah uh, that's so. that's like you said that's a classic grouse winter that's they yeah. they, they thrive in that absolutely yeah, no, thrive win, in it. winter winter retention for adults was very good so hopefully hopefully we get a second clutch and you know it varies so much regionally though i mean you could drive 80 miles a different direction from here yeah, and yeah they, they might have they might have chicks right now the size of quail you know it's, it's, yeah exactly uh, yep. hard hard to say i always see a uh, variable age broods in my general hunting zone so yep. yep yeah cool well awesome man like i said thank you very much and uh i'm gonna stop recording <laughs>